Philippians 2, we ended last time I taught, and we talked about uh, gifts and ministries and callings, and uh, they're all different. They're meant to be different, um, and we can see the same things true for visions of churches, right? If we were all the same, we wouldn't need to have multiple ones. Sometimes God has gifts for people, and that church ministry is, you're suited better for that, and we're going to talk a little bit about tonight about vision for that and how that's okay also to be a little bit different. There's some play. God has his word, and his word is true, and it's inerrant. Um, but however, there are liberties for certain things that he uh, gives us insight to. So we talked a little bit about Timothy. Um, Paul called Timothy uh, a son, and he called Epaphroditus a worker, a fellow worker and a soldier. He had uh, a heart as both of them, yet he saw them differently, and he wanted both of them to come to Philippi to minister to the people, because even though they were a different angle and different gifts, they were both beneficial and, and necessary, which we talked again about our um, callings and how we need what you have and you need what we have, and we need to come together and share them. And they took their calling seriously, and he said then to hold such men in esteem, um, to give them, they had a good reputation to value them highly. So people that are um, going forward in, in this and have counted the cost, he says that that's what's important. That's what we should be looking at as a, something to value. And we know that he, he talked about all can be saved. Right? God wants everyone to be saved. So salvation is common. We all have the same salvation. However, we all have been given different gifts. So gifts are unique. And uh, some have one, some have more than one. And we are in control of those. Right? God doesn't come in and then take over our lives and make my mouth move. I have a say in it. Right? It says in Corinthians that you know, the Spirit... We, is the one doing it, but we choose to allow him to do it or not. So God doesn't make me say something that I'm not willing to open my mouth and have come out of it. And uh, in Matthew 10, we talked about it, how Jesus called his, 10, or his 12 disciples, right? And he gave them gifts, and then he told them, freely you've received, freely give. So of the things that they had to offer were things that they got first. And that's the thing that we have of value, right? We're like this a vessel and what's worth something is what's in us, what God puts in us. That's what we have to offer. That's what we should be looking to share with one another. Is, is, the, is the gift inside of us that God gave us. And then we uh, saw in Luke 10 how he sent out the, the 70 and they returned and they gave a report saying, look, look what we did. And Jesus said, you know, it's good that you did something. First of all, he wasn't impressed. Right? What did they do? They did what he told them to do. It's like, we were obedient. What you said actually worked. Jesus wasn't surprised. It did. I never thought that was going to work. Right? But they did. They, what else are they going to say? Sometimes you just, like Peter was noted for that commonly. He didn't know what to say, so he said something. Sometimes it's better just to be quiet. But they were excited. God was okay with it. Jesus didn't rebuke them for it. But he, but he did tell them, don't be, have joy over the fact that the spirits were in subject to you, but joy rather that your names are written in the, lamb, in the book of life. You're going to heaven. That's what should make you rejoice. And he didn't say, if you keep this up, they may be in it. He said, rejoice that your names are written. It's already done. 
Everything's been done. This is you living out your faith, and it should get you excited. And that's what, that's what should keep you going. So they were talking about the circumstances and things that happened through them. And he's like, you know, you ought to be happy what was done for you because things around you might go bad, but you're still going to heaven. You, you don't have to, you can have happiness over your circumstances, but your joy is in, is in the Lord, which is, uh, brings us to chapter three. <laughs> we good? Okay, chapter 3, finally, my brother, and the first thing he says is rejoice in the Lord, right? Don't rejoice over what has been happening, but rejoice because the things in Philippi were difficult and they were tough, and he's trying to encourage them. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, uh, if anyone thinks, yeah, which is in the law, blameless, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency, excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So there's this contradiction between what he did in order to gain and get ahead as opposed to what he did that actually pushed him farther away. So back to verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Again, he is the reason that we can rejoice, and we're in him. And then he says, for me to write these things, is not tedious, but few it is safe. And as I was about to study and been going over these things, and a lot of the things I'm going to say tonight, some of them were mentioned this morning, like chapter and verse. And uh, some of the things Richard spoke last week, and some of the things actually Dave was talking about in Acts, we're going to be going there too. And uh, sometimes you're like thinking, oh man, he stole my stuff, or it's going to be repetitive. And in, in the stuff that I'm about to say, in the verses that we're in, he says to repeat these is not tedious. God doesn't have a problem repeating himself. I've heard one pastor say that he taught a study, and then the next week he taught the same thing, and the next week he taught the same thing. And they said, pastor, is this the only study you know? And he's like, well, God says I can go on as soon as we get this. We're not there yet. So sometimes we need to hear it. And uh, sometimes I need to hear it. I'm glad that God is repetitive. I'd like to say I'm forgetful, but it's probably more true that I'm stubborn. <laughs> and he's patient. You ever get upset sometimes when people, when they're not patient? Or you ask God to do something, and you're like, what are you taking so long? But, you know, when, when we're not doing the right thing, we're pretty glad he's patient. <laughs> Thank you for being patient, Lord. But he says, not grievous, 
means it, it's safe. And uh, it's not Paul being lazy, but it's establishing something. He's putting something down and he's repeating himself. Like I said, over 19 times he talks about joy in this book. He's trying to establish something to set a precedence. And uh, verse 2, right, we just talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. They were held in high esteem. And now he's about to say, you know what, not all people and not all the people that go out with something to say are to be held in high esteem. There's certain people you need to be aware of. And he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. So beware of dogs. I don't know, some people are cat people, some people are dog people. Some dogs are cute, and then there's our dog. And, uh, well, she's cute to us, but I, can, I could work mutilation in, in with that picture, too, if I wanted to. She's a beast. Um, so, obviously, sometimes the word dog is used uh, in context biblically, and some of them are like little puppies, and they're cute in their household and they're around. Um, but they're also stray dogs, and stray dogs were things that would walk around and they're not, t- they're not cared for. So like some dogs, like our dog, she could probably feed herself if she was on the loose. So she would be, they go out and they're looking for scraps and they're just troublemakers. And they're lost and they might be hungry and they're just fending for themselves. And it's, you know, you talk about the epitome of the flesh, they're not born again. They don't have a spirit. So in the animal kingdom, the strong survive. And some people that aren't saved kind of take some of these things that you see in nature apart from God and try to apply them to humanity. And, and Paul says, you know what, you need to be aware of that. That's not how we're supposed to act. That is how people act without the Spirit of God. That's how we acted before we had the Spirit of God. And it's all about me. And people, you know, even to the, even to the context, they're unable to love in the Spirit because they're devoid of the Spirit. And any love that we think that we might have is still self-motivated. Many people, I've shared many times with people outside of the church, you know, talking about separating. I'd like to say divorce, but they were, most of them were never married to begin with. They were just living together. And they're like, oh, I'm just not in love with them anymore. And, and, and after you talk to them, the truth is, is they love the way that that other person made them feel. And that person doesn't make them feel that way anymore. So it was never the other person that they loved. It was themselves. You benefit me, so I love being around you. It's, it's survival of the fittest. It's just trying to, to get along. And, and, and in, the, in the church, to the Philippians, Paul is saying, beware of dogs. There are creatures that go around that are only looking to gain something for themselves, like wolves eat sheep. And then he says, beware of evil workers. And they're working. And they're evil. And Timothy, right, which has been taking us through, a worker who rightly divides the word of truth. A worker dividing the word of truth. So there is a truth to the scriptures. And then you can also twist it and make it say something else. And, the, and he's going to clearly go on and say that there is a whole, most of tonight will be about this. You can look at something and come to an opinion of it. You can look at something that might contradict something else and you can't work your way through it and you'll come to a conclusion. And some people think that's all they need to do. I'm very educated and I can figure it out. And I'm going to look at this through my eyes. Rather, the gifts are something that was given. Timothy and Epaphrodites were given gifts and Paul was given a gift and they were exhorted to go out and use the gifts that they give. And teaching's a gift. And what does it mean? 
All ministry basically is, the way the Lord explained it to me, is going to work with your dad day. Like if you're a kid and you have a job and your kid goes with you, you know, bring your daughter to work. What do they actually do? Well, most of the time you don't get as much work done because you have to spend time with them. (laughs) They're a distraction. But a blessing, distraction, you want to share things with them. You want them to see what you do. You might allow them to get involved. You might even let them push some buttons, but they're pushing the buttons that you told them to push. And the only things that they're doing is they're instructed and they're watched. And if they mess up, it's okay because they're just trying and you're just happy to be with them. And God doesn't entrust us to try to figure things out and do anything. We don't save anybody. We don't come to any new knowledge of anything. All we do is we receive something from him and we give it out. And he's there, and he wants to do something. He's like, hey, I want to talk to them. I'll tell you what I want to tell them. And some people don't get something from God. They just go say what they think sounds good because they want to be the focal point. And whenever it's the spirit working, Jesus is always the focal point. That's usually how you can tell the difference. Evil workers. Some people, you can, for whatever reason you want to teach, but you can have to look through it and come to a conclusion and try to figure it out. And most of the time... Now you want people to come, you want recognition, or you want to sound smart, so you have to come up with something that's new. I've got to keep them entertained, especially churches that don't go through the Bible. They come up with sermonettes or sermons, and now they have to think of some new thing to say or some new thing to draw a crowd. And it's not easy, and it doesn't take long where you're going to be out there away from the Word of God. And he says, beware of the mutilation. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. So this is obviously a play on words. The mutilation means something's mutilated, right? Circumcision, we know, is a word that was given. It's Old Testament doctrine. It's a cutting away of the flesh, right? It's It's a removal of something. And... Paul is saying that there are people that are coming along, Judaizers, that are talking about the circumcision, but actually all they're doing is taking out a knife and making a mess and destroying everything. They're they're mutilating it. It's a a derivative of the same word. And I just thought of, uh, in Galatians 5, he talks about um, the concision. I'll just read that real quick. Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you, so these people are giving troubling news, shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? 
then the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And that, again, that's another plan where it's cut themselves off. He's saying that, you know what, they're saying you need to, to have something cut off. He goes, they're the ones that should be cut off. This is what needs to be removed from you, not what they're telling you to do, but the fact that they're telling you things that are wrong. You need to get this doctrine out. It's wrong. These people that are trying to influence you in things that aren't right should be removed. And he does the same thing here in Philippians. It's, it's this play on words with circumcision again. He goes, they're the mutilation. For you, We are the, the true circumcision. He says, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So, and again, we go through this. Um, I've, I've been through it multiple times in regards to circumcision, um, but have no confidence in the flesh, which is hurtful to our pride, but very encouraging too. I think I've mentioned it before. One of the very first, I, I had very big into music before I got saved. God had to take almost all music away for me to cleanse my mind. Again, is, it, is there liberty to listen to certain kinds of music? We'll be talking about liberties in that in, in a little bit. What is lawful? What is good? What isn't? Something that might be okay for me might not be okay for you and vice versa. But God told me, you need to get away from that because that was a problem for you. And then I started listening to some Christian music. Even when I first came, like the worship was difficult because it was just new and it wasn't and once you get saved once you get fervent that it grows on you and then you love it and then there came a point in time when God allowed some styles of music back in my life Christian wise and I remember Far From Home FFH it was one of the first Christian albums my actually my sister-in-law bought me um, an album that I listened to and I was like you know this is pretty good because I'm listening to the words now and it makes sense you know a lot of times <laughs> go to non-believing friends, right? They talk about stuff and they're, you're listening to the words and they have the radio on at work and you have to listen to it. And some of the times it's not a deal. And sometimes I would just, because I know them and I'm trying to get it out of my head and that's already difficult. So as the song is singing, I know the words and I would just speak them because some of them are really bad. And then they're looking at me like, yeah, you know what that says. And now they're uncomfortable because they know I know what they're listening to. And they're like, I didn't know it said that. I just like the music. Okay, well, there's Christian music just like this. You don't listen to it. It's more than that. There's something, there's something to it. But um, this Far From Home album came, and he was just basically thanking God that he was incapable of doing anything. And I'm a new Christian, and I'm like, why would you thank God for that? <laughs> it seemed weird, but he's basically saying, you've done everything. If there was something that I was called to do, then I had to create something, then I'd be responsible for it, and I can't do it. I would feel horrible. He's like, I'm thankful that I'm free and I can just give it to you and let you, you did it all. Now I can just worship you for what you did. I don't have to perform. Now I can just worship. And I'm like, you know, it took a while, but that sunk in and it, it felt freeing. And religion is always putting a burden on you. It's always telling you what is required of you. And it never tells you how much is enough. Religion's a heavy load. And the penalty for breaking that is costly in the religious system. And Paul says, don't have any confidence in the flesh. And you ever walk with the Lord for a long time and you start becoming 
more Christian, whatever that means. It actually just means that you walk in the Spirit more than you used to because you can never be more like Christ when you're walking in the Spirit, and you can never be more like, unlike him when you're in the flesh. The two are at war with each other, right? Enmity, they're fighting, and they're both there. God doesn't remove the flesh when the Spirit comes out. He doesn't, he doesn't kick the flesh out, and you're still there, so now you have a choice. Now you get to love him, right? Crying out to God, why is this still in me? I hate it. You must hate it. Just take it away. And it took months before he finally answered to me. He goes, you're asking me to take away your ability to love me. He goes, just choose me. Like, oh, it's supposed to be hard, okay. And it's simple, but it's hard. Tell your flesh no. That's all you gotta do. It's simple, it's just hard. He goes, love me. So now the battle's there, and now you walk in the spirit more, and now you're getting convicted over the thoughts rather than the actions, and you're you're growing and you're becoming better as the as people will tell you, you should be repenting more and sinning less. Now little things you realize can break your fellowship with him. He's very gentle as baby Christians, but then he expects us to grow too. So now you're becoming more and more aware. And that's not a bad thing either, right? Because now all of a sudden you realize little things are sin you didn't before. So now here am I, here is God, and I used to think, wow, God's there, look how big he is. And then you realize the thing that separates you is all of your sin. And it's like, wow, I'm farther apart. And I realize I'm worse than I thought I was. And I realize he's better than I thought he was. And his gap between the two of us seems to keep getting bigger. But what spans that gap is his love. We're growing in love. We're growing in grace. You're becoming more and more in love with him, realizing more and more how vile I am and how good he is. And this whole relationship is getting better. And you become to learn to have less confidence in your flesh. And all of a sudden, you have a bad moment like this hour, last hour. I mean, I have them all the time. But sometimes you do something that you thought, I never thought I would do that before. I thought that was gone. I can't believe I had that came into my mind. And God is like, why? You're surprised? You thought your flesh was better? Did you forget where you came from? Sometimes he allows it because he wants us to remember. You don't, your flesh doesn't get better. That's why it needs to be put to death. You are always just as capable of doing any bad thing as anybody else ever in the world. We're not better than anybody. We're just forgiven. And we have the ability to be able to walk with him and have him give us victory through it. So he doesn't just say, you're saved, now you're better. You were bad. He goes, no, don't have confidence in your flesh, even now as a Christian. And the flesh is only what we can do. What can I do? Don't trust it. And then he goes on with this list of talking about things that he, he makes a point. We don't need to dwell on Paul's badness. We need to, he had a lot of things, and all these things would normally be counted as good things. Um, but I think where the Lord would take me are, are these, these, these Judaizers, these people that were coming in and teaching something. Uh, and the one thing that really caught my eye is, um, in, in verse 6, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So there was a righteousness to be had by the law, but it was all in your performance. And then that took me to Hebrews. I'll just read it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. So the law had a means to attain righteousness, and according to that, he was blameless, Yet Hebrews 8, verse 7 says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
So according to the first, he was faultless, but the first covenant was, fault, was faulted. It can't make you right. The, 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 the whole point of it wasn't to make you right with him. So according to the law. So if you were to look at what is the, how do you become right through the law? What is the law? Right? Well, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, we would read about the law. It's usually a, a word translated from the word Torah. And I am no Hebrew scholar, yet we're going to have a... I felt led to a little, because it fits in the study, um, the history of Jewish religion. Or I grew up, I've been to, I've been to Hebrew school for a day. I grew up, 70% of my class that I, I graduated was Jewish. I've been to many Jewish weddings. I've been to bar mitzvahs. I've been, in fact, did you know, has anyone here ever been to a bar mitzvah? Okay. Do you know, like at the end, they all stand up there and they have to recite stuff to become a man and they quote all this stuff. Do you know that they're actually in there hours before that? It's an all-day event. So I got invited. I was not one of the kids that went through Hebrew school. So when I showed up, I showed up at like 7, 8 in the morning, and there's a rabbi and the two kids getting bar mitzvahed up there, and my friend David's looking at me like, what are you doing here? I'm like, it said it's People don't show up until like 2. So I ended up in a wheelchair running down the hall with his brother. I didn't know. It's a look. So I... I have a history of being around it, but I absolutely don't know anything about it. I didn't graduate Hebrew school. In fact, I got thrown out the one day I went to Hebrew school. I was going to David's house after. Anyways, <laughs> they have this law. It's called the Torah. And we know, we think of it, I, I found a website called My Jewish Learning, so I had a 30-minute Hebrew study here. Five years of Hebrew school tied up in uh, the, the Torah, or the law, is five books of story, law, and poetry divided into 54 weekly portions. For the Jews, the concept of Torah is much broader than the books themselves. It can refer to all traditional Jewish learning, but usually refers to the Pentateuch, Penta being five, the first five books of Moses. And then, of course, we also know that throughout history, a lot of civilizations, especially Jewish, they weren't read. They, they didn't know how to read. They, they needed to be taught. Right, um, and you've, have you ever heard the word the Talmud? There's another. The Talmud is a generic term, which the word means study. So the word Torah means law. The Talmud means study, and uh, it's it's a generic term for the documents that comment and expand upon the Mishnah. The Mishnah means repeating. The first work of rabbinic law published around the year 200 by Rabbi Judah, the patriarch in the land of Israel. It said, although Talmud is largely about law and is studied, it's not read. So this is a book, it's like a legal book, a law book, where they go in and they, they crash it out. And again, think about unsafe people. Think about our law. Like, what is legal to do? What is not legal to do? How intricate can it get? And it's, a, it's studied. The difficulty of an intergenerational text has necessitated and fostered the development of an institutional and communal structure that supported the learning of the Talmud and the establishment of special schools where each generation is apprenticed into its study by the previous generation. In other words, traditional teachings are passed on. 
right? And as we are going to get into some of the teachings of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, this is going to kind of all come into play, right? We know that certain people had certain individuals, and they would argue over which of them was correct. So they, they were going through these case studies of trying to figure out what was. And then there's this other thing. Um, it's called the Gemara. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It means learning. So we've had the law, the study, and now the learning. After the publication of the Mishnah, the sages of Israel, both in the land of Israel and in the largest diaspora community of Babylonia, modern-day Iraq, began to study both the Mishnah and the traditional teachings. Their work consisted largely, largely of working out the Mishnah's inner logic, trying to extract logical, legal principles from the specific statements of case law, searching out derivations on legal statements from scripture, and relating statements found in the Mishnah to traditions that were left out. Each community produced its own Gemara. So now you have a bunch of people looking at thou shalt not murder. And they come up with a lot of interpretation on it. Divorce. A lot of interpretation on it. How much of that was what God said and what he had intended? But they come through. One of the examples I had read, per se, is because people have questions. And inquiring minds want to know. So if the, the law says, you know, something, a dead animal can make a house unclean. That's pretty self-explanatory. So they said, okay, well, what if, so if the dog dies in the house, is the house unclean? Yes. Well, if the dog dies outside of the house, is the, dog, is the house un unclean? No, the house is clean if the dog dies outside. Well, what if he dies on the doorstep? Well, then they had a committee, a board meeting. They all got together, and they said, well, which way was the nose facing, in the house or out of the house? Because they got to have an answer, Right? Somebody asked me that question, which is actually true. I'll just tell you the truth. I don't know. I don't know if it matters. But they would come through. So they, they were the ones that had knowledge, and there was this pressure. And all of a sudden, they're sitting there saying, well, if you're coming to us, we'll, we'll figure it out, and, and we'll go. So they had all of this crazy interpretation, and people looked up to them. And these are the people that are supposedly representing God and his word and what it meant. And what was the law designed to do? To make you realize you need a savior. They could have just said, just repent and trust in the Messiah, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Matthew 16, if you would turn there. Paul told the Philippians, beware of dogs, evil workers, and a mutilation. Matthew 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He left them and departed. Wait, that was another verse we heard. They want a sign. These are the people that 
have their Mishnah, they know the Torah, they study all of this stuff, they have their schools, they have their camps, and they're like, you have a different teaching, you're trying to come up with your own little set of doctrine, let's just see how yours plays in with ours. And uh, to prove it, show us a sign. And he's like, you are an evil and adulterous generation. You are evil workers. You are trying to do something that's not right. And I love this, because then he throws out, okay, I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's the only sign you're getting. And I don't know about you. I haven't read all these Jewish. You think they teach anything about what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? We know, because Jesus died and rose three days later. You think they had any clue? They're like, what signs he talking about? I never would have read Jonah and figured out, oh, the Messiah is supposed to be in the grave three days. <laughs> I don't know if they knew. We know that because Jesus told us. Verse 5, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. So I love that too. We know what he's going to say. They were like, oh, man, we forgot the bread. And these are the people he's going to use. That's encouraging to me. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their Gemara. He says, you know what, you need to beware of the things that they're teaching you. 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, so right after he said, you need to beware of their teachings, the next thing that he says is, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said to him, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now you're getting it. Give out what you receive. God's talking to you. That's what I want you to share. And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the ecclesia, first mention. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. They will not overcome it, or they will not be superior in strength. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ, Jesus the Christ. So he tells them to beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then he tells Peter, I'm going to give you the keys, and now you are going to be binding and loosing. And maybe you've got a better understanding than I used to what it means to bind and loose. The only thing, my, I have Pentecostal people in my family in the background. Pastor Chuck came out of a Pentecostal background. I've always heard that it meant to bind the powers of Satan, although he's not talking about any spiritual entity or power here. It seemed out of context. I never really fully grasped that. And then I was reading, which I'm about to read to you, uh, 
Are you guys familiar with David Guzik? Does anybody here know who David Guzik is? He, uh, <laughs> he used to run the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry in, in Europe. Um, he's a pastor in California. He teaches at the East Coast Pastors Conference. Also, commonly, he's a, he's a well-known uh, guy. And he, he, I'll read it. And, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He says, his commentary, for the power of binding and loosing is something that the Jewish rabbis of that day used. They bound and loosed an individual in the application of a particular point of the law. Jesus' promise that Peter and the other apostles would be able to set the boundaries authoritatively for the new covenant community. This was the authority given to the apostles and prophets to build a foundation, Ephesians 2.20. Then he says, we should understand that the authority that Peter carries is not an authority which he carries alone, as he may be seen from the repetition of the latter part in the verse, Matthew 18, 18, with reference to the whole disciples group as a whole. So all of the disciples got that also. And then he goes on to the next point. This is a quote from Barclay. Binding and loosing were administrative terms in daily Jewish life. Whenever a Jew came up against the law of Moses, that Jewish person was either bound or loosed in regard to the law. To loose was to permit or pronounce as lawful, and to bind was to prohibit or pronounce as unlawful. He goes on to say, as their rabbi, Jesus did this binding and loosing for his own disciples without using the same words. This is what he did when he allowed them to take grain of wheat in the field in Matthew. Significantly, when it came to understanding the dietary laws of the old covenant in light of the new work of Jesus, God spoke to Peter first. He and the other apostles, guided by the Spirit of God, would bind and loose Christians regarding to such parts of the old covenant. And, uh, and then I went on and looking and Pastor Joe, uh, Matthew Henry, just about everybody took that view on binding and loosing, which surprised me because everybody agreed, and I guess that's just my ignorance. I had never read that before, but it makes it seem so much clearer uh, in my mind. Matthew 16, 18, again, we just read it, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God had been dealing with the world through Israel, Right? He just said, don't listen to their doctrine. And he goes, from now on, I'm going to build it on you, on this truth. One, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Christ, and I'm going to build my church. And now you're going to be the one speaking what the word of God means, not them. The New Testament is not something that Jesus came up with opposed to the Old Testament. It's actually the correct understanding of the Old Testament. He said they took it and made it something it wasn't intended to be. I'm correcting that again. They had the scriptures. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the promise of Messiah's birth. Now Jesus is telling them through the church, the Ecclesia, and also another commentary that I wrote that many of the scribes used to walk around wearing a key on their neck. So when he says, I'm giving you the key, it's kind of like I vision it, the key to understanding. They were the ones that would open up the understanding of something. He goes, but they're not going to have it anymore. Now I'm going to use you. In Matthew 28, he tells them at the end, right, go and make disciples, teaching other people what I have taught you and commanded you. So what did Jesus teach us? And to us, it might be not new, because this might be what we learned, but for them, they had learned all the old stuff first and they had to get rid of it. 
So now we might be well taught in New Testament doctrine, but if you ever sat there and thought you knew something and all of a sudden heard something or read something on your own and it contradicted something that you knew to be true, and then you tried to look back and find out where it was that, that made you think the first thought and you can't find it. It's like, where did that come from? I, we have so many things from our past, from what we thought to be true. For right? God, We need to be supple, right? God, correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't know why I thought that to be true. And sometimes you have part of a truth, but he has to expand on it, and you're going to gain more full knowledge of it eventually. And it's something that he has to do. He has to enlighten you. He has to open your eyes. He has to take the scales off and by his spirit. And sometimes we're just not in a place mentally, emotionally, or spiritually to receive something. And it doesn't stop him from telling you, but sometimes it takes a while for it to sink in. And that's why it's good to repeat things. And sometimes, okay, now I get it. Matthew 15. Let's, uh, I'm going to read the, starting in verse 1, if you turn there also. Correcting things that we thought to be true that weren't. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? your Gemara, your mission. The way you understand something to be true, you've actually not only taught it wrong, but you've actually encouraged people to violate what the intent was. So it's not only a lack of knowledge, it's actually evil, because you're, you're, you're encouraging bad habits. And a simple one, right? Ten commandments, one of the ten, right? Honor your mother and father, right? I think it's number four. What does it mean, honor your mother and father? God says in Exodus, honor your mother and father. Then he goes on to the next one. What? I used to ask, I think I brought, mentioned that to you before too, right? Brought up in Sunday school. Ask a kid, what does it mean to honor your mother and father? Almost all of them will say, just do what they say. I said, okay, that's obeying your mother and father. If your mother and father tells you to clean your room, what does it mean to honor your mother and father? Well, then you go clean your room. Okay, what if I say, what am I going to clean my room for? You always tell me, all oh, the other kids are outside playing. And you walk upstairs and you're throwing things around and you make a little bit of mess and then you pick up a couple of things. And then you clean your room. I said, did you clean your room? Yeah. Well, did you honor them? I can obey them and not honor them. So, so I have this whole other context of what I thought it meant to honor your mother and father. And I remember a few years ago reading this and Jesus is like, yeah, no, there's more yet. <laughs> Four, for God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, it is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far for me, for in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. They come with their own conclusions and they teach it as if it's doctrine. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. So, first of all, he was going to say, Right, Corbin, right? We have a friend that named their son that gift of God. What an awesome name, right? But they had wealth 
and their parents had need. So they gave it all to God, and they said, well, my mom needs it, but I can't give it to her because it's not mine anymore. I gave it to God. That's what they were doing. So according to Jesus, honoring your mother and father, he says, if you don't take care of them with the help that they're asking for when you're older and you have financial need, you're not honoring them. I never got that out of it when I read it. But it makes you want to take care of your parents a little bit better. What does it actually mean to honor your mother and father? Well, pray about it and ask God. Maybe you can do better than I did. Then he goes on to verse 11. What goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth this or defiles not... Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. When his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying this? Well, good, they got it. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. It's all about what's in the heart, right? Is murder wrong? Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. You know, I don't have to obey the law. That doesn't mean that you can kill people. So what, what is, how does the law apply, right? And people don't, it's not like somebody's walking down the street and you pull out a knife and they stab somebody and they die and they walk away. So, oh, I guess I'm a murderer. You're not a murderer because you're a murderer. You're, you, you had something in your heart that wanted to do that. That's the problem. The act is one thing. The heart is what God wants to deal with. If you didn't have that evil thought in, heart, or in, your, in your heart, then you wouldn't have wanted to kill somebody to begin with. Most of the time when something violent happens, it's because you've been thinking about it, and it's in your heart, and you're not letting it go, and when it comes time to be able to do something about it, it's, your flesh has already taken over, and now you can't control yourself. The Bible says... Take every thought captive. Don't meditate on those things. That's the issue. God's in your heart. Let Jesus take over. If you're in the spirit and somebody does something that offends you, well, then they saw Jesus in you. They didn't like it. So now you're going to be praying for them. Now you're going to be witnessing to them. Now you're going to want to help them. It won't be about you. The flesh is evil. My flesh is evil. Your flesh is evil. It doesn't honor God. And we all know that. Matthew 23, if you turn there real quick. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe that to observe that observe and do but do not do according to their works for they say and do not do verse 4 for they bind loosing and binding they bind heavy burdens hard to bear lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers 
They're telling you that you have to do things that you're not capable of doing and that they're not willing to do. Same chapter, turn to verse 34. In between that and this are eight woes, right? Woe to you, woe to you, talking to them. Verse 34, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets speaking to them of the apostles. I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There's this switch from the old religious system where they distorted and mutilated God's Old Testament covenant law, how they interpreted it. And he's saying, I'm going to send people that are going to fix it. But then he also says, you're going to kill them. Right? We read that earlier. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He says it's not going to prevail. It's not going to win. It's not going to overpower them. Right? We've read also that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It seems like when people die, things come. Every time the church is persecuted, it seems like it grows. So he's not saying nothing bad or hard will ever happen to you because he's telling them you're going to die, right? As far as we know through history, John was the only apostle that wasn't martyred. To the people that he said, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you. And then they were killed. But it didn't prevail. They're in heaven. Matthew 5, he says, blessed are you when they persecute you. It, it, it wasn't victorious. The very, and I just had this picture of a kid's movie. Well, Aslan, right? He's in the tent, and all of a sudden, the witch comes in, and they're like, I know the law. Somebody's got to die. And he's like, silence, don't quote to me your law or whatever. And then he walks away thinking he's beaten them. He's willing to give me his life because that guy died. I won. I'm going to kill him. But, of course, that was the plan all along that when he died, he was going to rise again. It was a picture of Jesus Christ dying. Satan thought he won by defeating him, but actually all he did is fulfilled his purpose. He's using him. Things can be hard. Things can be difficult. People are going to hate him, but it doesn't mean they won, and it doesn't mean God's not fulfilling what he wanted to do. In fact, there's blessings for it. God works everything to the good. It if he's got to work it to the good, that means it didn't seem good beforehand but he worked it to the good. Sometimes difficult, hard things happen. That's what he's writing this whole letter to the Philippians about. You're going through things that are difficult and they're hard, but Satan's not winning, and it's not for nothing. It's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. And you're gonna, in the end, you're going to be looking at me saying, I didn't know that. This is what I was getting for that. I would never would have complained. This is awesome. It's true. Everything he's saying is true. And speaking of that, Matthew 5, right? If we turn there real quick. The Sermon on the Mount, I should do practice runs, but I'm never that prepared. I never know how long I'm going to go, so I might end up start reading really fast, and my wife will yell at me, but I still got a bunch left. <laughs> or it shouldn't yell at me, but 
Matthew 5, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so here Jesus is teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't just tell them to pick up heavy burdens like the Pharisees, but let them see you doing what you do. 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I came to fulfill. I underline those. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not burn her. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. So then we go on to all of these. You have heard. You have the mission. The people have read to you their understanding of the law. This is how they attained their righteousness. It didn't work. You need to be better than that. I'm going to teach you correctly. And then he goes on and talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love, charitable deeds, prayer, fasting, wealth, judging. All of those are in context in the law and how he understands it. And if you just chapter 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do not men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. It's about how we live. There's a right understanding of how we do things. Jesus is constantly correcting mistaken doctrine because we need it. And many of the things are repeated. Just Matthew 12, you don't have to turn there. He declared lawful and unlawful, picking grain on the Sabbath, David eating showbread, 
healing on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath, divorce, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? Right? There's all of these things that, that go on. John 7, 17, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If you do his doctrine, then you will know. Well, how can I know it's the truth? It doesn't seem right. Well, do it. Test him. Try it. You'll find out it's true. The gospel works. It works in me and it works for me. Right? So there's, these, there's different sets of teachings and there's a truth. Right? And we know in Acts 2.42, like I mentioned earlier in Matthew at the end, he said, teach others what I taught you. Jesus had all these teachings. He passed it on to the apostles. Then he tells them to go out and teach, right? And in John 17, we read that Jesus said, not only those who are here, but those who are going to hear from them. So it's all to us. It's this thing passed on, rightly understanding the scripture. I remember years ago, Pastor Jeff was here. If you've been coming to this church for six months and sitting under Bible studies, you probably know scripture better than most pastors in pulpits, unfortunately. And that's unfortunate. There are many churches that do not teach the Word of God, or they teach what they were taught about it, and they have their own little set of doctrine. Each, each denomination has their things that they pass down, and it may or may not line up with the Scriptures. And it's unfortunate. We need to find out, what does the Word of God say? What does it say? Check it out yourselves. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly, right? In the Apostles' Doctrine, the Breaking of Bread, and Fellowship, and in Prayers. They had the Apostles' Doctrine. It wasn't new in the sense... Everything that he taught was a picture of what was in the Old, rightly understanding the Old Testament. And even uh, Acts 15, I'll just, in verse 23, right? So Pastor Dave was not there not too long ago. There was this Judaizers that came in, and people were telling them at the church that they needed, Galatia, I believe, right, that they had to get circumcised. And how did they deal with it? Um, Acts 15, verse 23. They wrote a letter. This is the letter that the apostles and all the church leadership got together to send to these people. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who were sent, who went out from us, have troubled you with words unsettling your souls saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, I mean, you could have stopped, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, but and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden, what are they binding and loosening? No greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain, abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep these, if you keep yourself from these, you do well. Farewell. There's the law, in a nutshell. This, it's, it's well that you do this. It doesn't say this is what you must do in order to be saved. They're bringing you this whole law and saying you have to keep all of these other teachings. Well, there was some benefit to the law. Here's a few of them. But we know that you're saved because you fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled it in you. And just due to time, I'll read through this quickly. I kind of went through, has anybody been through an inductive Bible study? 
Has anybody gone through and outlined books of the Bible? It can be helpful. It's not necessary. It's a good way to, to study. That's most of the people in teaching Calvary's have this inductive outline thing. The book of Romans in and of itself, right? Writing about Jewish stuff to, to Jews in Rome. And there's basically this outline that I was going to go through basically has three parts. Uh, the revelation of the righteousness of God, the vindication of the righteousness of God, and the application of the righteousness of God. Right? And in the Paul, this is a book that not only is astounding and deep, and you could spend your life just reading this book and not figuring it all out. Paul's mind, the Holy Spirit through this is incredible. But non but secular people still some claim that this is probably one of the best pieces pieces of literature ever written. Right, so in the, in the first part, uh, that's broken up into four sections. Introduction, condemnation, justification, and sanctification. Right? The condemnation is broken into the guilt of the Gentiles, the guilt of the Jews, all are guilty. The next part is justification. It's a, in, imputing God's righteousness. So a description of righteousness, Abraham as an example, the benefits of righteousness, and the contrast of righteousness and condemnation. And Abraham's examples was apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from the law, but by faith. All out of the Old Testament teaching righteousness. Next part is sanctification. And that's broken into three spots. Sanctification in sin, sanctification in the law, and sanctification in the spirit. And then he talks about the vindication of righteousness of God, basically Israel's past, present, and future. And then the application of righteousness, which is in Christian duty, in Christian liberties, and then he concludes the book. All out of the Old Testament, all pictures and examples, the apostles' doctrine, justification, sanctification, all of this stuff out of the Old Testament, rightly understanding it, and that's what we are to pass on to other people, which hopefully we are. Romans 16, it says in verse 17 and 18, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offense contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. There's people that come out and look at the law and come with these things that seem to be astounding, right? But the Corinthians, which is where we're going to end, if you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, well, 1 Corinthians 8, the, first, the Corinthians were well known for a lot of things, right? We know the, the Corinthians church was known for being very spiritual, but also for being carnal. You might think that how it's hard to be both, but they'd fall behind no other church in spiritual things, yet they were divided, they were arguing, they were sexually immoral, they did all of these things. And they had a saying uh, they were well known for, that all things are lawful. I'm spiritual, so what I do, it doesn't matter anymore. I've been forgiven. All things are lawful. Right In 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul wrote, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So all things are lawful, but, but they're not all helpful. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will... Not all things edify. So he's, he's quoting it back to them. You say this, but you might, what, what does it mean for it to be lawful? You're saying all things are loosed. 
You're able to do everything. He's like, you know what? Yeah, but they don't benefit. They're not all right. What, are you free in Christ? Does that mean you're free to sin or are you free from sin? It all, I remember when I was a new Christian, I was like, can I, can I be a Christian and do this? Can I be a Christian and do that? And I'm sitting there trying to figure out what things I must do. And then God eventually told me, he goes, why do you want to do that? Well, why'd you ask me that? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what's the motive behind it? Is that going to benefit you? Is it, that just, that changed my world. When, when he spoke, hopefully he's spoken that to you too. What's the motive? Why, what is the reason why you want to do something? Because that's really what makes it either helpful, beneficial or not. Because sometimes when you do things, it, it, it doesn't matter to you. It matters to other people. 1 Corinthians 8, it's now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat it are we the better, nor if we do not eat it are we the worse. But beware lest someone, somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. If anyone sees you who have the knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not this conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols, and because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Sometimes we have liberty to do things and they are lawful, but what we are also free to do is to love people. And sometimes loving people means that we give up things so that it, they won't be hurt for them. 1 Corinthians 10. Sorry, I'm going to be going a little bit long. We're going to end in chapter 10. I have communion here in the middle. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers who were under the cloud all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And again, this is a picture of eating something offered to an idol and then worshiping that idol. Eight, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the koinonia, the coming, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And uh, Gene, if you want to come up, we'll uh, sing a song, we'll come up and we'll get the tokens and if you'd wait and then... Uh, We'll partake after that. And again, all things are lawful for me, not all things are helpful. And just remembering that as worshipers, we offer sac- they were offering sacrifices to their false god, and then they partake of what that god represented. And uh, we are here taking communion, remembering what our god did for us. So... We'll just come up and wait, please. <laughs> 